Once again, we are now recording. <laughs> okay. Somebody almost went to sleep when I said now recording. It's going to be one of those days I can see. And I don't need that in. So I've actually tested these. They are very audible. They're unfortunately very much my voice. So you're sort of stuck with that. But they are very audible. So... Um, where we are is at the beginning of chapter 17. Um, we've already given out the um, study guides for the next segment, not only 17 through 21.8, but 21.9 through 22.5. I gave those out last week. I do have extras if you don't have one with you. I don't know if we'll get into that tonight. Depends on how fast this segment goes. If I can remind you, next week is October 31st on Tuesday. All campus activities are shut down other than Kids Fest. Kids Fest, not my class. So, um, do encourage you to be involved in Kids Fest. It's a kick. There's a lot of good things happening. Uh, we're, we've added uh, the thing this year that pretty much ensures most every one of the kids and families hears. Uh, at least the the basics of the gospel and um, it should be well from my perspective it should be a lot of fun so I'll be there and I'll have fun and I'll have the candy bike the actual candy bike uh, out there there will probably be a knockoff a <laughs> wannabe candy bike is that true Well, whatever that thing with the identity confusion is, will it be there? Yes. Okay. So once again, we'll give Dave a chance to sit on a real motorcycle. Um, no, that was me sitting on the wannabe motorcycle. And then it was you and me both sitting on my motorcycle. Yeah, it's because it doesn't have enough power and it can't handle two people. <laughs> I guarantee you mine will take it. If they ain't a Harley made it'll beat that thing. So, and I'm perfectly happy to go until 8.30 with this line. How many vote that we keep talking <laughs> Honda versus Harley? No? Okay. Well, killjoys. What are you going to do? So, apparently, once again, we have shown how much we need to pray. So, let's go to the Lord, ask him to guide us. Father, we thank you for allowing us to come together. We thank you, Lord, that we're not outside right now. And uh, for the, the cool air, I guess for the heat. So we appreciate how much you've given us and being able to come into a place like this and, and be cool and uh, be able to study your word. Just pray that you would guide us in that. A number of our people, Lord, still not here. And I ask that you would be with them. Um, just encourage them and strengthen them and those who are following online. Lord, that you would help them to understand and uh, that all of us, in, as we continue to study your word, would also, Lord, be able to apply it in our lives and be faithful. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Was that my rude computer? If it was, it isn't anymore. It are mooted. Not muted, mind you, just mooted. So, um, next week, we will take a break. The week after 
next. Uh, the original schedule had us, that's, that's a whole other thing. We, after the, the fires uh, interrupted our uh, study, uh, we added a week. So the week after, we will definitely be meeting. It is extremely possible that we will finish everything up that day. Um, I have the final study guide today that I'll give you. So we're, we're actually a couple of weeks ahead on the study guides. But when you see it, you'll, you'll realize that that last segment is just the epilogue. It's not a whole giant segment and again. So I'm pretty sure it is doable to tuck in. Um, so that's what I'm shooting for. If it doesn't work that way, then we'll figure something else out and we'll make it work. Okay? Any questions on the schedule? We're all good on the schedule. This might be a good time to just say, are there any questions at all? Now, definitely, as we enter this next study guide section, the third vision, Revelation 17 through the eighth verse of 21, um, are there any questions? But, of course, you're free to ask or call attention to any which are all the way back to, let's not rehash the letters again, but I'd say 4, 1, and on. And this particular one is the one where I started with the uh, different way of handling the words. I will be asking you, whether you ask the question or not, what words you came up with. Uh, because I think that's a pretty important skill for you to be able to do your own Bible study. And then I also had one tricky trick question. Um, well, it wasn't a question. It was one of the words. Um, so we'll definitely give attention to that. What questions might you have that you want to zero in on tonight? A million questions, but I can't zero in on one. They're just all floating around in the, well, the void. All these things that I don't understand. So. Well, which but, things yeah. are they? What do you not understand about hell that weighs 100 pounds? Maybe it's the, I think it, the whole thing is just all the terror. Yes. Before this comes. So let's, let's so take that, let's take that as, as a discussion of the symbolism itself. Because again, there's no question this is highly symbolic. Nobody can read this and, and walk away thinking it's not. No, I think it's extraordinarily easy and obvious what it means. See, the problem is people want to make it mean something it was never intended to mean. So, yeah, you'll drive yourself crazy if you try to do that. But if you take it for what the obvious is. So, terror. Who was the terror directed at? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. What? Who? I heard. Everybody on earth almost. No, it wasn't. Okay, but it wasn't terror for them. I think it'd be terror to look up and get hit by a 100-pound hailstorm. I, I think it'd be a nice way to go compared to a lot of others I've seen. <laughs> so the terror explicitly in the text is directed at the sinners. And by sinners, it doesn't mean just those who have sinned. It means those who are choosing sin over God. Right. Still practicing sin, still refusing 
to repent, to listen. He who has ears, let him hear. It's a call to repentance. So it is directed at those who refuse to do that. The others are reminded, place to place, that yes, this will be hard for a time, but then you will be the ones who overcome. So we have two messages, and they're pretty simple messages. Terror, and then you have various examples of terror. So think of them that way. If you try to think of, okay, what is the, is the 100-pound hailstone literal? Is it figurative for something specific that's going to happen on such and such a date? This is what has been happening since pretty much the, the, the dispensationalist teaching has taken uh, front row in pop theology. And that's only been since roughly the beginning of the 1900s. We need to understand that. Vast majority of Christian history, nobody was doing that. They understood it to mean exactly what it means. Terror. And terror for those who refuse to follow God. And then let's illustrate terror. What, let me give you an, ex an example of why it's illustrated this way. Um, who here can tell me about hell? About hell. 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 What is hell? Hell. Hell or hell? Hell. H-E-L-L. Hell. Who can tell me? Separation from God. Where'd you get that? Because that's what it is. Well, no, it's what you said it is. Where did you get that? Um, I don't know. Ah, okay. What? Lake of fire down. Now, where'd you get that? Oh, uh, Revelation, by the way. I know I'm being picky. Okay, so hell is actually pictured or final judgment, which most people will equate to hell, and I don't know that I would argue that, is pictured as a lake of fire. Now, the only problem with that is if, again, you want to be one of the literalists, you've got the issue that it's also pictured as other things. Can anybody think of another thing it's pictured as? Gnashing of teeth? Well, that, yeah, the gnashing of teeth is our uh, response to it, which is simply an expression of agony. What? Um, I don't, I'm, I'm quite capable of gnashing my teeth without being in hell. However, when I'm in hell, no, if I were to go to hell, because I don't plan that itinerary, um, I would definitely be doing that because, again, it is a picture of utter agony. So one could say then, hell is utter agony, right? But what else is it? Biblically, what else is it? Gehenna. Gehenna. What is Gehenna? It's a garbage dump. It is one whale of a garbage dump. If you've ever been around an old garbage dump, First of all, you may have noticed it's higher than it was when it started because there's years of Gehenna was the, the giant dump outside of Jerusalem where for centuries they discarded their garbage. Now, their garbage may be something as simple as a broken pot, except they usually you know, ground it up and did things with those. So the real thing you have to discard is what you cannot have around you, Right? So um, let's say you are going to eat a lamb, because you're not going to eat a pig there. Um, so you eat a lamb. Do you eat all the lamb? No. no, there's lamb parts floating around. 
What are you going to do with those lamb parts? Gehenna. Imagine that over, oh, let's just simplify it to a thousand years. There's a natural substance, by the way, that's produced by the, the putrefaction and rot of all of this organic matter. It would be a vegetable matter also that wasn't consumed. It would be anything and everything dumped out there, human waste dumped out there. So anybody know what that natural byproduct is? It's methane. And methane is highly flammable. Well, yeah, you're going to have lots of, I, I don't know if that's a natural byproduct, but you're going to have bugs. Lots and lots. And yes, a heck of a lot of flies. Um, and so you've got fire coming up because you've got these methane shoots coming up. You know, We've seen that in the United States with, with garbage dumps that have only been around 20 years. Imagine a thousand years. You know, it's, it's mind-boggling, and it's huge. And boy, do the flies have there. In fact, because this is a picture of hell, because it is, you know, living not just around it, but in it, is about the worst thing you could think of. Just as burning in fire forever is about the worst thing you can think of. And so that would be seen as hell. Well, who rules hell? at least in our mythology. The devil. the devil. Yeah, by the way, there's nowhere that says that. God rules everywhere. God is sovereign. We, we, God rules everywhere. God is sovereign. Yeah, that's a blanket statement. God never cedes his sovereignty to Satan. Ever. It's not in the scripture. The opposite's in the scripture. So the devil is, was seen popularly as the Lord of Gehenna. And Gehenna's got the flies. Is that written in the Bible? This, is, this is the tradition of the Jews. It's, church, it's just basic history. And the Jews actually referred to Satan um, as Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Isn't that a fun little factoid? Because he's Lord of the trash heap. So once again, hell is, it, it's, think of the worst place you could think of. Now for some of us, we have other fears. Anybody have a fear of falling? I have no fear of heights. But I have woken up in dreams where I am soaked in sweat because of the, the falling. And, you know, the, the, the old, uh, I, I'm hoping it's a myth, that says if, you've, if you actually hit, you're dead. <laughs> So I think most of us wake up before we get there, but I, I've hit, but never from, you know, way up. Um, so you get this, this total feeling of terror, of uh, you're, you're out of control, there's no way you can be saved, you're, you're just free falling and you know there's going to be a splat. And so hell is also referred to as the bottomless pit. In fact, we're going to run into that in the Revelation. Those are not all the same thing. Hell is the worst thing you can think of, except it's worse than that. That's what is happening. We cannot conceive of hell. I agree with you, by the way. Hey, hell is separation from God. There is nothing worse than that. But people can conceive of that because they don't understand what it is to be connected with God to begin with. So that, for, for the one who's not with the Lord, that's no terror. <laughs> 
oh, so God's just not messing, messing up my thing. So that's cool. He's out of the way. So no. And by the way, when people say, well, I'd rather be in hell with so-and-so. Well, where'd you get the idea? It's a party. Where'd you get the idea? You get to be with someone. Hell's the worst place you can be. Isolation. There's not going to be people you know you get to sit there and draw strength from. That's not the way it works. Hell is the worst place you can think of, only worse. Terror. So what kind of terror? How much terror? What are you talking about? Is this something that I, as someone reading this, should really be concerned about or respond to? Or are you just trying to, you know, scare me a little bit? And so I get illustration after illustration after illustration of the worst kind of terror I can think of. That's what I'm in for. That's what John is doing here, and that's what apocalyptic literature does. So the message of the terror is, it's terror. Repent. Or it's terror, so stay faithful. Because the pressure on them, see, was because of terror that the world could put on. Terror that Domitian could put on, the Roman emperor. And so they, the pressure was to cave in to that terror and renounce the lordship of Jesus. Sacrifice to the emperor. Commit idolatry. John says to them, no, you don't understand. Domitian has his terror. That's true. There's no covering up. There's no lying in this. But that terror doesn't hold a candle to the terror that happens to those who do not remain faithful to God, who choose to worship Domitian instead of God. So it's your choice. But God has already won. That's the message of the book of Revelation, period. And we have decades of people driving themselves crazy, and unfortunately some others, trying to make it say things it doesn't. And this is why everybody says it's so complicated. It's not complicated. It's obvious, unless we think it means something else, something different than the obvious. Terror is terror. And when it's clearly indicated that this is the fate of those who refuse to follow the Lord, what do you suppose the message every single person who hears that is going to get? What's the message? What? You would think it's repent or else. Okay. It, and, I mean, that's pretty human terms, but <laughs> repent or else. From God's perspective, it, it might be a bit more positive. I've got to be careful of the way I put it. Um, so it's more like there is a way to avoid that. I love you enough to not make you go through that. I love you enough to come and die for you so you don't have to go through that. So are you interested or not? Of course, because all through the New Testament, Jesus, the apostles, everybody has acknowledged that the means by which we accept the gift of salvation, it is a gift, it's not a payment, is what? We are saved by grace. What's the rest of the sentence? Through faith. Through faith. And faith exists three-dimensionally. 
remember. I mean, that's my way of describing it. But in Scripture, that word, pistis, means, yes, I, I give intellectual assent, but it also means I trust. So I'm not trying to earn it. And it also means, to the best of my ability, I live faithfully. Faithfulness, same word as believe, as trust. In the Greek language, same word. And even James warns against trying to divide up what we see as these dimensions when he says, you say you believe? Good, because he's talking to people who think, uh, which is a pretty Greek thing, so they were being influenced already. If I know, I believe God exists, I believe there is one God as opposed to all the you know, pantheons, uh, then I'm in. And James says, you believe there's one God? Good. So do the demons. But the demons don't trust. And the demons are definitely not faithful. And by the way, that should be the answer for you to a question that I'm going to be giving you several times in the next few study guides, that there is no contradiction between what you're going to see here, where people are paid back for what they do, for the way they live, and salvation by grace. Any more than there's a contradiction between Ephesians 2, which is saved by grace through faith, and Matthew 7, where Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but those who do, present tense, the will of the Father. So is Jesus all of a sudden saying it's legalistic? He's saying you have to be faithful. Yeah. And if you're not, what happens? Well, it depends. Because I've been unfaithful. What? Oh, okay. So if I confess my sin, he's still faithful. He is still faithful. I think that's a, point, uh, a pointed statement. Because if I'm confessing my sin, by definition, I'm not still faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive my sin and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. So no, there's not an expectation of perfection, of being good enough. There's only an expectation that says, I can follow my own will and therefore sit. And in doing so, okay, I'm probably following Satan, but not because he's my Lord, but because he did the same thing. So I'm just kind of with him and all the others who decide to be my own, their own Lord. Or I can follow Jesus. And will I be perfect? Will you be perfect following Jesus? No. Should you then be terrified of the terrors? Why? Right. Because you're not practicing sin, you're practicing righteousness. So as Hebrews puts it, you've got a choice. You can see God as judge. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or you can see God as Father. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 12. All discipline is unpleasant for the moment. But when it has accomplished its purpose, or another translation, when we are fully trained by it, 
it yields a harvest of righteousness and peace. Is this making sense? Okay. Obviously, there's people who disagree with this. And there, are, there is no lack of their books and their movies and their fiction um, all over the place. And I say fiction, I'm not being sarcastic there. There's all sorts of fiction books, uh, series of fiction books written, uh, interpreting it very histor futuristically historically, meaning this is all going to be real stuff. And, oh, that's what the hail was. <laughs> Big things falling on us. Hail's hail, 100-pound hail, and you express some chagrin at the prospect of standing there and being hit by a 100-pound hailstone. It's kind of the point. It's terror. It, you know, and, and by the way, they didn't have buildings, for the most part, that could shelter them from it. You know, We can be inside a building, and it would take a pretty big hit from a 100-pound hailstone. But, yeah, we, we could still be safe. They're not going to be. Their crops, their their animals. And, and see, since I don't believe this is uh, a picture of a future historical event, and f for 19 centuries, the church did not believe that, or 18, um, I'm not worried about that per se, but it brings us back to one of the most basic things we face. What if someone I love chooses not to follow Jesus? And is there anybody in here who hasn't thought about that and hasn't been given the willies by that? I mean, how, how can you be loving and not have a problem? And the only thing I can say is, I think the Lord, I'm going to get through it just fine, no matter what, because the scripture says he will remove even the source of tears. Yeah. I don't know how that works if my child isn't with me. I don't get that, but I don't have to get it. I trust him. And I know that he feels exactly what I'm feeling. He's the one who stood and looked over Jerusalem and said, how many times have I wanted to gather you in like a hen gathering his chicks to protect you, but you wouldn't let me do it. And he's the one who died to give them a chance. So we can't leave all of that behind when we read this. Because then, yeah, it's going to be bizarre and weird and we'll never understand anything. God's, a, God's tough love. <laughs> well, actually, that's where it becomes God's tough judgment. And that's the problem, is there will be a day where he will be father to those who choose father and he will be judge to the others. And it is a terrifying thing. And that's, that's real. All right, so let's dive in. Chapter 17, and I'm going to start reading some, and then I'm going to get to some words, and then I'm going to ask you what words you're getting. So then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, 
with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Harlot means to us what? Harlot spiritually is a symbol very consistent through the entire uh, history of Israel, through the Old Testament and the roots of apocalyptic literature. And it means what? One specific sin. Nope. That's what we see it being. That's the concrete. What's the spiritual version of that? You know this. You're just not catching my question. Betraying God, which there's a word for that. Well, actually, it would be harlotry. Thank you. But no, that's the word is idolatry. See, we don't think of idolatry as much because we don't usually see people with statues. Although in Orange County, I've seen it. We do have cultures that actually do that. But the, the, the turning away from God to worship other small g gods, idolatry, is referred to as harlotry throughout Scripture. It is the primary theme of the book of Joel where Joel is told to go marry a prostitute, let her live out her lifestyle and experience what that's like so you can go tell the people how, God says, how I see what you're doing. Because the people are like the prostitute married to God running after all these other men, meaning the gods, the idols. See? Very consistent throughout Scripture. So when, when you see the great harlot here, we, again, we tend to think, okay, so it's a great sinner. It's great. Of course it's a great sinner, but that's not the point. This is someone who commits adultery, spiritually, idolatry, who encourages others to turn away from God. Because in the end, it's not a, a given sin that's worse than anything else, except the sin of saying to God, no, I do not want you. I will not be in that relationship with you. Okay. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Scarlet can mean what? What? I can't hear you. Okay, but symbolically. Okay, mean blood, which can mean what? Death. Can mean death. Can mean cleansing. Remember the cleansing of, that happens by blood. Um, but it also had another meaning, and the only thing it tells you one or the other is the context, and the other meaning is sin. So spiritual purity is what color? White. White. So my though, though your sins be as scarlet they will become white as snow. snow. What? White as snow. Oh, that's, yeah. white. that's what I said. Okay. Yeah. So, scarlet here is not purity. It's not even just blood. It's sin. And we know that because full of blasphemous names. Uh, that's not something you're going to find with something that's very pure. 
The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet. Purple means royalty. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. So we get this picture of this beautiful thing to the world, which is an abomination to God. That's going to, in a future study guide, become a, a point. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So Babylon itself was a historical city known for its sin and for bringing people away from God. Remember the Assyrians. One of the Assy things the Assyrians wanted to do is break the worship of Yahweh because that's where the nationalism lie. So if we can get the, these, these Jews to worship other gods, they're not as worried about restoring Israel. And we're not going to need to be as worried about a rebellion. Babylonians did exactly the same thing. Romans, during the writing of this, are doing exactly the same thing. So last week or the week before, one of you mentioned, well, wait a minute, I thought Rome was Babylon the Great. Well, Babylon the Great to the Jews was a, a fixed place. It was actually Babylon. But Rome was compared to what they did and was being colored with the same brush, if you will, painted with the same brush. Okay. So, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw a woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said, why do you wonder? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was not was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to, to destruction. Um, abyss is one of the words I asked you to look up. Did anybody look that up? Yeah, it's, it's actually what we get. Our word abyss is just English letters for that Greek word. What does it mean? Yeah. So we get back to this idea. It's... Uh, we think of abyss as very deep. There's actually places in the ocean called the such and such abyss. Okay, Nobody thinks they're bottomless. <laughs> Nobody thinks they go through to the other side of the planet and then out into space. But this word specifically meant not just a deep place, but a place without end downward. Remember the geography, the... the uh, Vertical geography we talked about. Up is what? Heaven. Right here is us. Down there, eh, they didn't have that word yet, but Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead. And so the abyss is going to sink right down there, and yet it's like it never stops. So it adds that terror to it. That's very intentional, by the way. Those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth 
and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. How long is an hour? Is it a long time? We've been talking about a thousand years in other places. So for an hour. That's, that they're going to get some authority. It's not going to last long. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now again, if you choose to say, well, I'm sure those are actual historical entities, people, kingdoms, countries, whatever, uh, then you're going to spend forever trying to match them up. Um, as has everybody else who's come up with that in the last 117 years or so. This actually goes back about like 120. But um, the problem is they keep changing it. Because, you know, when, when I came to the Lord, um, Russia, China, Vietnam, th those were the places. Because that's where the West had their head. And it was only people in the West that were doing this. So what's the problem with that? Well, th those, those circumstances have all changed now. It's not what they thought it was. So now the very same people or their spiritual descendants are, okay, it's Iraq, it's Iran, it's North Korea. Well, Russia's getting back into the picture, so maybe it is Russia after all. And because after all, they were, then they weren't, and now they are again. See, we can, we can find ways to make it sound like it fits. You're going to have to decide. I've said it till I'm blue in the face. I don't believe that's ever what was being said. What was being said was not written about thousands of years later. It was written to people undergoing persecution right then and there as a message of encouragement, which they got. History says they understood it, and they were encouraged by it. So, you know, we can ignore that. And if you do, I, I don't know what to say. I can't help you. But if you don't, then the meaning becomes very clear, and by the way, very important to us. Anybody here ever run into something in life where you just felt you couldn't handle it? And you felt like just giving up? And maybe even saying to the Lord, is this what it's really about? Is this the joy you're talking about? Because that's what they were in danger of doing. And then we read these same things. He who overcomes will gain the crown. Okay. These will wage war against the Lamb. By the way, the lamb is continual symbol. Who is the lamb? Jesus. Jesus. And the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. That kind of makes the Jesus part really obvious. And those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Interesting word, called. Did anybody list that as a word to look up? No? Eklekti. 
Eclecti. If I say I am eclectic in my taste, what does it mean? Uh, well, I don't everything, but I draw from everything. It literally means th those called out. Okay, ecclesia, that which is called out. Ecclesia is the group. Eclecti are the people in the group. So, you could literally translate this not uh, the called, but the church. The church, and chosen and faithful. Which, by the way, means they're identified as the chosen and the faithful. But it's the same word. It's simply referring to, if we are the church, then uh, it's saying, you're the church, and you're the church, and you're the church, and referring to uh, the individuals together. Okay? And he said, go ahead. Well, there's, there's several ways you know, and that's why I want to start doing this so you guys can practice it. Because it's going to take you, if you do this for a year, by the end of that year, you're going to be getting pretty good at choosing words. Some of it is you're going to be looking at that and saying, okay, I, I remember something about called. I wonder if. Okay? And then there's going to be, no, I looked a word up, and that, I wonder if it's the same word. But then you're going to also start just looking at things and saying, I wonder what exactly that means. And, and you have to slow down. When I do these study guides, I put the words down, and I, and I do them fairly fast, frankly. But it's generally about the fourth time I've read it. I mean, reread it. I don't care how many hundreds of times I've done it before. But in preparing for this, it's about the fourth time I've read it again that I start picking the words. Because I have to force myself to, to slow down and not miss some of these things. The, the meaning of this is going to be the same if he didn't use the word called. But it's a bit richer because he did, if you understand. Because he just identified us, or at least those who were us in that time. And so when, it, when it's applied to the rest of the church, than us too. Does that make sense? There will be other words that um, they simply, you know, you're told to do something. One of the things I like to do, anytime I'm commanded to do something, I want to make sure I know what it is. And it's amazing how many times we get in, in trouble. Love. Well, I just can't love him. Forgive. I can. I, I, I don't care. I know God told me to, but I cannot forgive him. Well, excuse me, but you just decided to go to hell. So I, if I were you, I wouldn't take that quite so lightly. Because Jesus said, if you do not forgive others, I will not forgive you. Actually, he said, my father will not forgive you. But I can't. And the answer to that is, what does the word mean? And the vast majority of Americans, by our modern definition of the word forgive. And of course, the word forgive is English and was not used. So what was the word and what did it mean? And all of a sudden, we learn we can we may not want to. Now there's another problem. See? Husbands, love your wives. What in the world does that mean? Well, I'm a husband. i got to find out. Right? Pray for those who persecute you and despitefully use you. Well, there's more than one word for pray. What exactly is he saying? Anytime we're told to do something, it's not a bad idea to think, hmm, let's figure that out. Sometimes it's a matter of 
okay, I don't understand because this seems to contradict that. So then you look the words up to be sure, first of all, that you're not just dealing with a definition issue. You're not always, by the way. Sometimes it's obviously context once you do that. But you don't know until you do the study. And, and the reason for me doing this is everybody here is capable of doing that. Every one of you. I don't know if that's encouraging or threatening, but <laughs> whatever. Okay. He said to me, this is the lamb, the waters which you saw, no, wait, 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 wait. This is, uh, the, the antecedent of he has been debated, but it still sounds like it's the angel narrating this. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay. And, and by the way, you just saw something here which is pretty important symbolically, spiritually, and then we find out it's for real as well. I mean, literal. Um, God uses these people. They're not godly people. The, the, the dis description of them is not that they're part of the chosen, the church, the faithful. But God uses people like that anyway. Witness Assyria. Now, we're in a study about Jonah and what he thinks of Nineveh. But were he to live about two generations later, he would think a whole lot less of them. Because in Jonah's time, if we've dated him correctly, Israel still exists. Two generations later, the Assyrians wipe Israel from the face of the earth. Literally. They just destroy Israel. But when you read the Old Testament, God tells you who did it. And who does he say did it? Do you not know or are you afraid to say? Pardon? Well, they destroyed themselves. They brought it on themselves. But it was not a natural consequence. It was a logical consequence, which means the parent had to make it happen. God did it. He used Israel and later Babylon for Judah. Same way. And the prophets say this. It wasn't Assyria. It was God. So don't be trying to placate Syria. You need to go figure out how to get right with God. And when that happens, you ain't going to worry, need to worry about Assyria anymore. And the same for all of these. Okay, so we're, we're going to stop for a second because we're through the 17th at least. Um, did anybody look up any or, or identify any words to look up in the 17th chapter? What did you do? What, what words? Okay. And what? You got what? Okay. That's not coincidental because these are big words. They're, they're important concepts. So you're going to read them and it's not going to be uh, unusual to say, yeah, those are, those are good things to do. I had, um, I actually wrote down the ones 
that I, because I, I did eight of them to start with and then removed four of them. And just as a, a fun thing to see which ones you would do. And um, two of those we're on with. Which two? Hmm? Which two? I ain't going to tell you. But it's judgment and wrath. And by the way, you're going to see abomination in a future study guide. Same word. Well, I, I just. I knew what abomination was. I got to see if this is just. Exactly. By the way, another, another tip off. When you're reading a word that is a religious word, a church word, a word that, I mean, who goes around saying abomination today? We don't use the word. So what is this? What does this mean? That's a, it's a good reason to pick that and look it up. So did you find the meanings of these words? Any troubles? No. Did, did they shed any light on anything? Oh, yeah. Pick one and, and share it if you would. The, um, the abomination. Because sometimes I use that word just, um, that's an abomination. But uh, per, it means that to reek with stench and what well, emits a foul odor and hence so I'm getting the idea this is not a positive like thing. When people refuse to hear and obey his word, they okay. become an abomination. An abomination. Yeah. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to plant an idea in you guys. I'm glad you picked that. I did not pay you in advance, did I? To pick that word. No. I'm not paying you in future either so there we go um i actually just picked that word for an, uh, the study guide i put together today and the reason is because there's another shade of meaning which you can find in a resource that is available to you in that room over there that not only sheds a little bit more light on what this is saying but maybe even helps us understand because let's face it abomination is an English word so we say well that's an abomination that's an abomination before God quoting scripture well what in the world does that mean and it means sometimes different than what God even intended and there is a context today where that word is used and it even has political overtones and it's missed but to understand what it is You've got to catch that layer of meaning that was understood at this time. So I'm going to stop there because you're going to have a week or two to do this, if you wish, because it's, you know, the resources are in there. Well, this is Hebrew. It is the same word. Yeah, it, well, the Old Testament is Hebrew. Or some of it is uh, Aramaic, which is basically the, uh, a modernization. Remember, the Old Testament, unlike the New Testament, was written over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Very possibly as many as 1,500 to 2,000 years. So uh, the New Testament was written roughly 50 years span. So words aren't going to change much. Language is not going to change much. But in the Old Testament, it does. So it, it's, it's not a different word. It's just there's a shade of meaning that had to do not so much with the root of the word, 
but how they used it. It's a principle called usus loquendi, which means use in that location. So when Paul uses agape, you could look up agape and see how it was used in classic Greek, and it won't be the same. But who cares? That's not, he's not speaking classic Greek and not speaking at that time. In Kine Greek, that's the usus loquendi. What does it mean? And that's how we get the meaning of it. Okay. And there's, again, there's lots of tools that do that for us so we do not have to devote our entire life to trying to figure out the meaning of one or two words. And there's literally people who have done that. All right, let's move on, and then uh, we'll stop after 18 and see if you've got any others. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine and the, of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she is paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed. Mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, I'm not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God, who judges her, is strong. The word strong, by the way, is not one I listed. Did anybody list that one? It, there, there's a lot of different words in Greek. I'm sorry, I... I It is Greek. <laughs> why did why did you not yell at me when I said that? I was moving in and out of the Old Testament and New Testament ideas, and that's why I said that. So you you were right in saying Greek, and because the Revelation of John was written in Greek, almost. We'll get to that in a, in a minute. Well, I told you there was a trick in here. Okay. All right. So anyway, strong is the word capable or able. Um, in Greek, dynamis is power. That's raw, strong. Okay. This is a word that means uh, strong enough to get it done. And the emphasis isn't on the raw power. The emphasis is he can do that. All these things that are being claimed because it's easy to claim things, you know, trash talk. He can do it. He has the ability to do it. And it's a warning as well as an encouragement, depending on which side of this battle you're choosing to stand. So the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality lived sensuously with and lived sensuously, sensuously with her 
will weep and lament over her when, she, when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Again, we see that hour, which means it's pretty quick. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. It's an interesting thing that even John and the Holy Spirit points out through this revelation, and that is the, the propensity for human beings to try to make money out of evil and be willing to side with evil out of greed. Not just power, not just hedonism. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk, scarlet, every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep. It's like a listing of the commodities exchange here. And that's exactly what it was. Cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for is gone from you. All things were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance, and they were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. This, this city, this woman, this harlot, represents something. Now remember... Regardless of whether you, you buy my understanding of the apocalyptic nature of this, it was written to people in the first century. Okay? So to them, there's no question that Rome is going to come to mind. And they're not in Rome. They're not even surrounded by Romans. They're surrounded by Greeks. Because Asia Minor had been overrun by Greeks hundreds of years later, earlier. And essentially, it was a Greek region. But the Greeks did exactly what all of these are talking about. They made money out of Rome. They made money out of the conquest. They made money out of Rome's power. The merchants, the shipmasters, on and on. They went along with all of this. And so when they see Rome, when they see Domitian, no longer having the power that he had, and they see judgment happening, they start backing away. And they're mourning. But they're not mourning out of any kind of concern or care or love. Why are they mourning? For their own loss. Once again, yeah, it's a narrative of reality. But it's also a warning. 
because whoever's doing that, the people who are right now reading this, and they're the merchants. They're the, sh the, the shipmasters. They've got a choice still. And they're hearing that choice, and they're hearing what's going to happen. They're seeing a description of themselves if they make the wrong choice. So this is an extraordinarily powerful message, and a message, I would say, that is equally powerful today. It's not complicated. If you're aligning yourself with evil, if you're you know, closing your eyes to things that you should not be closing your eyes to, and you know better, but you're, you're making some money off of it, so you're going to let it go, you need to see that, and you need to step back from mm -hmm. that and understand. You can be sucked in when the judgment happens to what you've aligned yourself with. Or you can now say, I get it, I'm, I'm not going to be part of that. And then no longer have to endure the judgment. That's going to happen because of what you're doing. Because God still forgives. But when those events happen, getting pretty close to the too late mark. Anybody look up words in chapter 18? No words at all in chapter 18? Okay. I thought Well, no, I'm saying Babylon is the image that would have gone with the history of the literature, but the people would have identified, okay, who's Babylon today, so to speak? I couldn't find it. I tried. I'm not new at looking all that up. Right. Well, okay, but that's not definition. What I'm looking for is just looking up the words, and if you look up the words, you're going to find great, and you're going to find city. To go to what? To make me try to figure out what Babylon or what. Well, but I that's... Maybe do it a different reason. I yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's, that's what I'm trying to point out. There's looking up the words, and that's what that section is about, to understand the words themselves. Then, okay, we know what Babylon is. And if the great city is referring to Babylon, whether it's metaphorically or literally, we still know what it means. Um, but how do we know what it means? That's what you're looking for. So you're looking for the imagery of Babylon. And, and that, there's a very rich historical imagery. And if you're not sure where to go with that, I can point you to some places. Um, in T6, which by the way, you can never go to when we're in here because there's a small group in here. But um, in that room, the resources, there is uh, a couple of copies of a set, the International... No, 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 no. What is it? The Bible Background Commentary by InterVarsity Press. InterVarsity Press is the publisher. There's, it's two volumes. They're both huge volumes, Old Testament and New Testament, coincidentally. And um, it does exactly what it says. It just comments on the background of certain things. So, you know, what, what's that about? Well, this correlates or collates the historical research and the archaeological research done by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over centuries and presents it for you and so it's a really good reference work. I, I by the way, strongly recommend InterVarsity Press in general. 
a lot of the others have gone uh, away from faith and are owned by secular companies and they're, they're for profit and they're going to make money and that's what they're after. So the scholarly quality will depend on whether they think they can make money from scholarly quality. Internet University Press is a nonprofit. Um, it's an arm of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Their, their level of scholarship has been very, very strong for decades. And um, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything written in their, all of their books, but I definitely agree with the spirit of the writing of it and with the, the fact that I, I have yet to find one of the authors or editors who is intellectually or academically unqualified. I cannot say that about a lot of the other publishers. So I personally trust them. Now, there is one big problem with them because I identified for you know the decades they've been doing this. Well, <sighs> copyright lasts for decades too. And it takes a lot of money to put a book like that together. So the ones that are free, online particularly, um, they're not going to be new and they're not going to be university. It's not because they're after money, it's just because you buy, you buy one of those new, it's going to cost you 30 or 40 bucks. However, there is this tool called Amazon and Amazon will give you new $40 used from $2 up. You might want to look at the from $2 up versions and see. Um, most of those in there I bought less than half retail. Because if you look closely you'll see a lot of them are used. And I figured we can actually not have to be the first person to ever crack the book. That's okay. And let somebody else pay. It's like buying a new car. Let someone else pay the upfront stuff. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the Bible background commentary, Old Testament and New Testament. So it's a set. There's another one, Dictionary of Bible, of Biblical Imagery. I believe that's the actual title of it. It's extremely close if that's not the word for word title. Also, InterVarsity. Um, and when you're, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff, it's very useful. Because what they've done is simply look back over centuries and millennia at literature and said, what do, do these images represent? What, what does this figure of speech or this symbol symbolize? Okay. All right. Chapter 19. After these things, I heard someone or something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Uh, by the way, multitude's not a bad one to look up either. Um, there's a multitude of angels in the Christmas story, and um, it usually has to do with strength, not just numbers. Saying, Hallelujah! Did anybody look up Hallelujah, even with the warning that I included? I mean, that should have made you all run to the, the books and say, Come on, what's that about? So, what is it? It's what? It is that. Anything else? Okay, okay. Now you just, you just did what I was hoping you would do. I looked it up just to see what it would say. And it's funny because it, it, the, the Greek is Ali, Ali, 
Alleluia. All, uh, the Greek is transliterating the Hebrew, giving Greek letters to the sound of the Hebrew. The problem is that means something entirely different and irrelevant in, in Greek. It's like one of those things where they, you know, you're trying to translate and you just called somebody a chicken. So if, if you do that, you may find some really funny things. Okay. Um, with, it's a preposition, with, among, behind, after. Except it's not. Because it's not a Greek word. It's a Hebrew word with Greek letters. Okay. And yes, it means praise or praise the Lord. Except that's not what it means. That's what we mean when we say it. So uh, two of you over here had exactly what it meant. Praise Yahweh. Hallel. There are Hallel Psalms. You will see even in English Bibles sometimes sections towards the end, uh, the last section of Psalms, called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. Okay? They're the praise psalms. They're the ones that say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's like all the way through. And then Yahweh. So, Hallel-Yah. And there's going to be a sound in the middle. And we've put in ooh. But remember that particularly for Semitic languages, Middle Eastern languages, vowels are not that important. Vowels are like placeholders. It's the consonants that make the word. So Yah shortened for shortened Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. When we say Hallelujah, we are saying praise Yahweh. We are not praising Yahweh. We're saying praise Yahweh. You get the difference. It's a difference between let's eat and eating. Let's eat. Great. That's not eating. Eating is putting food in your mouth, right? So praising Yahweh is lifting up Yahweh, uh, saying all the wonderful things that we know about Yahweh. That's praising Yahweh. Saying praise Yahweh is simply a call to do that. Same with praise the Lord. That's not praising the Lord. That's just a call to do it, which, by the way, almost always is unanswered, even by us. Praise the Lord, and we never do. Amazingly ironic. So congratulations to those of you who did not get taken in and think that this was a preposition. What? So, so how do you know it means praise Yahweh instead of a preposition that is among or behind or after? I don't think that heavy. I just write down what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's think heavy here for a minute. Let's think heavy here for a minute. How do you know it means that? Because it tells me to read it. I read it and it said it, so I believe You read what? <laughs> what, what it? Some book said it. I've got a Book of Mormon. It says things. You want to read it? I don't have Bible things. Well, those Bible things sometimes aren't Bible things, so be careful of that. Okay? So you know by the context, folks. Yeah. Context, always. You know, 
Praise Yahweh, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Or you could say, among. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Which one of those makes sense? See, one of those flows pretty well and the other one not so much. Because his judgments are true and righteous. More praise, by the way. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he's avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen. Which means... Let it be true. It is truth. can be either way. The let it be is an imperative. The other is, is indicative. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And we probably can all think of some songs using those very lyrics. What we don't get reproduced is the concept, if you listen to the description of the power of that voice, or voices, because it's not a voice. It is like the, the, the voices of all people who belong to the Lord, praising Him together at the same time. And it's, it's got to be overwhelming. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to God, uh, give the glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And the bride is? The us, the church, or to use the term being used here, the saints. We still tend to shy away from using that term to describe ourselves, but it's us. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, no, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And it's kind of interesting because you have this amazing angel, angelic figure, creature. We have no idea what it looks like, what it is, but it's apparently awesome. And he falls at its feet. Now that doesn't necessarily mean he's, he's worshiping it as God. But that creature is so sensitive to this, he won't allow it. No, get up. Don't do that. And it's fascinating. We, we need to have that same. It's, it's not about us ever. That's not false modesty. That's realization of who is sitting on the throne and who's not. And, and me not is not a put down to me. It's putting me where I belong. And that's a good thing. Not a bad thing. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. 
and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. It's interesting, there was a tradition among, I, I, I want to say almost all ancient peoples, um, Middle East, Asian, Native American, Polynesian. Um, it's one of those traditions that seems to indicate that there is indeed a, a cultural root to all cultures. And it, it has to do with the name. And the tradition that the name is a very personal thing and it holds power. So the Plains tribes of North America, for example, would not, they had two names for people. Um, one name would be a description. And that's what we usually think of when we think of the, the, the really famous ones. Sitting Bull, Crazy Horse. These are not their names. They had another name. And usually only their family, not even the rest of the tribe, knew the name. Because it was a name of great, uh, it was a way of, of great intimacy. But it also was considered to have power. And if you knew the name, you had power over that person. So the last thing they're going to do is give power to everybody over them. No one knows that name. Who has power over this person? No one. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. Remind you of anything? Who, who does the word describe in Scripture? Jesus. And does... And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress... Of the, of the fierce wrath of God. Remember the, the wine press, by the way? The shoulder length for 100 miles blood of the people? Yeah. He treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Does that, by the way, sound encouraging? That's another terror. There's another statement of judgment. And one of the things that Again, it's almost a universal. It's interesting. Some uh, cultures turn it the other way around and make this something to be desired. But the, the whole concept of burial is to keep wild animals from doing that. So that your, your body is not desecrated, shredded, uh, digested by them. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Oh, I'm sorry, that, we already did that one. Uh, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him 
who sat on the horse and against his army. And it's the, the next part is given away a little bit by the translators of NASB because it's entitled Doom of the Beast and False Prophet. Spoiler alert. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. What's brimstone? Yeah, the best we can uh, equate is sulfur. Probably is exactly that. But. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on a horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this right on the white horse was a false prophet? No. Where did you get that? Why do you now think it isn't? Because just now it said the guy in the white horse was, the kind army was killed by the sword that came from the mouth of the fire and the horse, and the horse was killed. Right. The other people. Oh, forget it. <laughs> in other words, the judgment comes from him. So this was. It is a picture of Christ. Okay, I got that, but I just. Yeah. See, what I'm, what I'm looking for is was it simply the fact that people were killed by him that is throwing you? No, it's just the way it all did and then they say how the beast came and just, I don't know. It is confusing. But see, the beast was immediately judged and thrown away. So the, the beast was not in league with the king of kings and lord of lords. It never says that. So you, again, sometimes it's a matter of slowing down and reading, but when you do that, you find that this is clearly the Messiah. And this is kind of the wrapping up. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. You remember those guys under the thrones? So they're back. Um, because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. You have just read the entire basis of the whole millennial theology. That paragraph. Okay. Now, did that say there is going to be an earthly kingdom and Jesus is going to reign over an earthly kingdom for a thousand years? Yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing that. But that is pretty much the universal understanding of all dispensationalists, premillennialists, um, 75, 80, 90% of American Christians today. The, the whole Billy Graham series of, of the movies, 
all of the um, Left Behind series, all of this stuff is predicated on that theology. And by the way, it's fiction. I mean, it's in the fiction section if you go to a library, okay? It's not in the religious section with, with the Bibles. It's fiction. But people read it as though it's real. And we've got to be real careful of that. Jesus made an interesting statement about his kingdom and where and, and the nature of his kingdom. Does anybody remember it? Anybody see this acrostic floating around? usually a lot more artistically represented. What does it mean? Not of this world. Because Jesus before Pilate said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my people would fight. And the, the, the implication that I'm not sure Pilate quite grasped is, you wouldn't be able to stand up to it. <laughs> if my kingdom was of this world, you wouldn't be here. My kingdom is not of this world. But these folks want us to believe all of a sudden Jesus changed his mind. It, it makes no sense. Another principle of understanding scripture or any literature, it's not just biblical interpretation, literary interpretation. The clear interprets the unclear, the whole interprets the part. So you've got something that's allegorical and you're saying, well, okay, they say it means this, I don't think it means this, doesn't look like it. How do I know? You look in other parts of scripture that are clearly not metaphoric or allegorical. Jesus was not speaking metaphorically to Pilate. He was man to man speaking straight out. Context makes that really clear. So we've got a very clear statement from Jesus himself. We know that is true. Now we use that to understand this. That becomes sort of a filter. Whatever you're going to get out of this has to be filtered through that first because that's what Jesus said. We know that. This we can debate about. We know that. You said they came again and reigned twice a thousand years. What does that mean? If they're not here, they're not there. Where are they? Or is it even... What does a thousand years mean? I mean? And a thousand years means? We'll figure that one out. It's, it's, a thousand is a long, kind of a perfect number. Not in the holy sense, like 12 or 7. Complete sense. Yeah. So again, if we're, if we're looking for a literal thousand years, personally, I think we're barking up an entirely different forest. Okay. I'm going to push ahead just a little bit if you guys are patient with me. And uh, in a few minutes, we'll finish this section. Then I saw a great white horse, or excuse me, a great white throne, Different than a horse. They look different somehow. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's interesting. Death itself was thrown away, thrown into the lake of fire. The place of death, thrown away, thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? So what's happening here is, uh, we're, things are changing. Everything's changing. We're coming to an end of things as we know it. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now again, is that literal? Um, hell means the worst you can think of. And for many of us, thrown into a, a, a place where it's literally a lake of fire so you cannot get away from the burning. And yet, it won't kill you so you can have oblivion either. You just keep hurting. Fire is one of the most painful things. It does some amazing things to our nerve endings and our nerves will not recover for, uh, from it as quickly as, say, a cut or a blow. And so it's built into us. Anybody who's ever been burned <laughs> to fear this. Okay. This is the judgment. And it's happening because of our work. Works. Deeds. Is that contrary to the gospel? Why not? Okay, but grace says I'm not judged because of my deeds. It's not by my works. Doesn't that contradict this? Here's the thing. Jesus said, we're already judged. He didn't come to judge us. We're already judged. Read John 3. When did you get judged? What judges you? Your deeds. So when did you get judged? When did I go from being this beautiful creation? Yes, the baby, it was beautiful. Shut up, Dave. When did I go from being that to deserving hell? When I sinned. It wasn't when God did anything. God is not responsible for sending me to hell. This is the thing that the world doesn't grasp. Say, God doesn't send people to hell. We do. Jesus didn't come to send people to hell. He came to give us a way out of that. Grace. So the grace doesn't contradict this. This is the natural order. This is what's going to happen, period. Unless, unless we come to the one who's given us a way out. And when we come to Him, and we belong to Him, now we've got grace. And now, according to Paul, we are not judged by our works. Or, in this case, eternal punishment. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I but eternity, that. yes. But, yeah. it's, it is the wrapping up of all things. No I think it is, uh, this, this is a metaphoric picture of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when he cries out, Death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? So this is the second death? Well, I don't think it refers to second death. Well, yeah, wait, 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 wait. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So second death is the judgment. Now, some have taken that literally, so the judgment is separation from God, and there is no punishment. You're just vaporized, and you're, you don't exist. You're yeah. That's what this says. Okay. Now, are you thrown into a literal lake of fire? Are you thrown into a bottomless pit? Are you thrown into a garbage heap? 
are you simply separated forever from God? I don't know. What I know is the judgment means whatever I can think of that is the worst, this is going to be worse than that. See, God knows. We are simply not capable of understanding either the eternity of judgment or the eternity of salvation. Because heaven's the opposite. Is it really a city with um, little homes made for each one of us? Is it really an internal banquet? We never get up from the table. We're eating all the time. I mean, some people would get into that, but for others, we, we'd have a problem. Is it really streets of gold? Because I got to tell you, it sounds like it would hurt my feet. I'm not into that. See, there's, but to them, streets of gold, to somebody who's in abject poverty, that was pretty big stuff. An eternal banquet to someone who's literally starving to death, that's pretty big stuff. Somebody who's lonely or feels uh, abandoned by the universe because their people have been conquered for eight centuries by everybody who happens along to be married to God himself. That's pretty big stuff. Heaven, think about the best thing you could possibly think of. Heaven's better. That's what they're saying. It's not literally any of these stuff. It's just better than anything we can come up with. Okay, wrapping it up. Um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Those are the first things. We're still in them, but they will pass away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, Right, for these words, these words are faithful and true. And then he said, It is done. I, by the way, where did you hear that before? Yes. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then one of the seven angels who had, been, who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That last verse is actually the beginning of the next segment. But you can see how it's like a bridge between these two aspects of the vision. We've just finished with the judgment. Now we're transitioning for a closer look at the, at the bride and the Lamb. The vision is shifting. So I went ahead and included it with the beginning of the next one. They put it in here. Okay, for those of you who are studying on the original schedule and are ahead of a little bit, 
I have the last of the study guides for you. Take one of those, thank you. And this one covers much less than what you've been covering. So you get to take a breath. Yeah, and I did send this one out already this afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay, I will be here if you've got questions that you want to talk about briefly, but I am going to turn this off for time's sake.